Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I invite you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the Word of God. The Bible says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Prezizites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and, and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people than the, that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt. You may be seated. So we come this morning to our final message from the book of Deuteronomy. We have spent the summer looking at this portion of Scripture from chapter 4 through these verses in chapter 7. We have considered during that time what it is like to live in a strange land. The people of God were finding themselves moving into this strange land. They'll, they'll do so as you would come to the end of this book and, and move into the book of Joshua as you're studying through the history of the nation of Israel. You would find there as they come into this place that they come into a land that is not, not something that they are fully prepared to understand. The, the depravity of this land and the, the sin that is prevalent in the land that they're going into. And they go into this land, and unfortunately for them, if you look at the rest of the story, if you will, if you look at the rest of the biblical narrative, they do not follow what God has told them to do. I mean, we have seen over and over again this summer these clear commands that God has presented His people with. And what we find, if you know what comes next and throughout the rest of their history, is that they often fail to obey what God has commanded them to do. And that leaves them in these sad circumstances that they find themselves at the end of the Old Testament. As they have no freedom, as they have had a constant invasion from other nations, as they have found themselves again in captivity, something that God had saved them from when He delivered them from Egypt. And it sets them up perfectly to be awaiting the Savior that comes when we go to the New Testament. 
What we know from the New Testament is that, that Christ was sent in order that He might redeem for Himself a people, a holy nation. He might set apart for Himself men and women who would be considered His brothers and His sisters, who God would make joint heirs with Him, who would have salvation through His death on the cross. And just in the same manner that God chose Israel, we come to the New Testament and God chooses for Himself a people. And I wonder if we understand the implications of saying that we have been chosen by God to be a holy nation that is to follow after Him. This morning I want us to consider that. I want us to consider what we should look like, how we should be, because we have been chosen by God because of His great love. God has chosen us to be His people if you are in Christ this morning. God has chosen you. He has selected you to be His child. He has adopted you out of darkness and adopted you to His light. He's given you eternal life and He has done so through the costly giving of His Son. The costly death of His Son. Through that, He has chosen you to be His child. And so what does that look like? Well, we can go all the way back to this passage, our last in Deuteronomy. And we see here four things that God says to them. Four characteristics God describes here. Because they have been chosen out of God's love. It's one of the important things to remember about the people of God. And we see that here and it's repeated other places in the Old Testament. They weren't the biggest. They weren't the best. They didn't have the most to offer. In fact, he names these nations at the beginning of this text. And he says, all of these nations are more numerous than you are. They had a more deeply developed culture than the Hebrew people. They had their religion and they had their gods. They had their society that was, again, more developed than, than the people of God had. Remember, the people of God at this point, they've never had their own nation. They've wandered around for most of their existence. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their, their three forefathers that are mentioned so often in the Bible, they just kind of wandered around and they ended up in Egypt and they ended up slaves. So why would it be that God would choose these people? There's no real reason. There's no real rhyme to it. We can try to decipher it. We can try to make decisions. But, but God's pretty clear here. There was no reason based on you. It was all about my choice. It was all about what I decided to do. It was all about the fact that, that I saw you as a nation and I loved you. I made an oath to your forefathers. Remember again, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so I, I picked you. So then what do we do with that? Well, let's look this morning at, in these eight verses, these four characteristics that are to be true of us because we have been chosen by God. We've been set apart. He looked down through eternity and he, he called your name. And you can probably point to the day that that happened. When, when, when Christ 
spoke to your heart, when the Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin and you, you turned from your sin and you believed that the, the good news of Christ was sufficient for your salvation, you believed that, that Christ's death was enough for you to be saved and have a relationship with God. On, on that day, now again, it's something God had been doing and working on and had determined long ago, but on that day when He, when he called you, so, so how do we respond to that? Well, let's look first in verses 1 and 2. He says something here that, is, that would be terribly unpopular to even think about. As a matter of fact, there are many preachers that would just simply skip over these passages, verses 1 and 2, because of what they are saying. You shouldn't skim over them. He talks about the, the people who live in the place they're going to possess And he says, when you have them, this land of the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Prezizites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, when you you have this place that these people dwell, what does he say to do in verse 2? He says, when the Lord gives them over to you and you defeat them, what do you do? Devote them to complete destruction. What does that mean? It means to kill them. All of them. That's what he says to do. You may not like that. You may not agree with it. You may think it's mean. Whatever. That's, That's your decision to do. But this is what the Bible says God told them to do. When you encounter these seven nations who are more numerous than you are, and you defeat them... Okay, so you have defeated them in battle. You're to take them back to be your slaves, right? No. He says you need to destroy them completely. Now we can, we can dig in at some point and, and, and for another time try to figure out, because it's not the point of this message, you know, why, why would God do this? And, and you hear theories thrown out about their, their sinfulness and, and God was judging them. And obviously that's all very true and very accurate. But, but if we try to get into this with some type of psychology to understand what God is doing, we're going to miss the point. Why does God want them to be destroyed? Well, it's because they are sinners before God and they have determined in front of God that they are going to worship these false idols. And God knows because He tells them later on, if they are allowed to continue on, if they are allowed to exist, they will turn your heart toward their false gods. If they're allowed to continue on, he's going to tell them in a minute, and you begin to allow your sons and daughters to marry with them, it's not as if they're going to go out and get all of those people to turn and follow after the one true God. No, what they're going to do is they're going to pull your hearts away from God and toward sin. And what we see in these first two verses is that God has no tolerance for sin. And friends, that's the first characteristic. If you have been chosen by God, you are to have no tolerance for sin. We've gotten weak on this one as the church. We we really like to... Well, at least when I was growing up, and when many of you were growing up, the church was really good about pointing out other people's sins. 
So like it's really easy to turn on the television and point out everybody's sin, right? We see that. Some of us are still really good at that. We're really good at looking out and saying, hey, here's, here's this person's sin. Man, that's, you know, at least I'm not like them. And we, we see the, the celebrity culture and we see our politicians and we see our athletes and we see, you know, the people who have lots of money or things like you know, Whatever it is, you, you pick, you know, because we've all got our preferences of who we point out. But we're good at that. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That we recognize sin. But we're, he's not talking here about their sins. What is his concern? That their sin is going to infiltrate the people of God and become the people of God's sin if they do not destroy these other nations. See, that's where we've gotten not so great. Is it pointing out our own sin? at recognizing our own sin and shortcoming, at recognizing that we do not live up to God's standard. And I say that we as individuals, and I say that we as a collective, as the church, we do not live up to God's standards, but we have a hard time pointing that out. We let that go. We see people that we know who claim the name of Christ, they're living in sin, and we try to make excuses for them. Well, here we need to understand that the God who has called us, the one who has chosen us, if you are in Christ, has no tolerance for sin. It's zero. Not some. He has zero tolerance for sin. And so every time we sin and disobey God, He hates that. It's not like He looks at it and goes, well, you know, They're pretty messed up, so, I mean, at least they didn't kill anybody today. You know, they were hating their neighbor, and, I mean, we know that's not good, but but I I can kind of overlook that. What was the sin that plunged humanity into darkness? It was eating a piece of fruit in disobedience to God. How many of you have committed a sin... You don't need to raise your hands because that would be slightly embarrassing for the people who didn't raise their hand because then they would be liars. How many of you in the last week have committed a sin worse than eating a piece of fruit? Now, some of you are going, well, I don't know, not me. So you've, you've not judged anybody. You've not hated on anybody. You, you've not lusted after something whether it was a person or a thing you've you've not done any of those things it's kind of hard to believe isn't it because isn't that what we struggle with all the time so if God was willing to plunge the world send the world away from him separate himself from humanity over a piece of fruit Do you not think that he is intolerant of your sin? That for the things that you have done in disobedience to him even this week, he would condemn you to hell were it not for the blood of Christ? Because he most certainly would. You may not like to hear that. You may not even think that's true, but that's what the Bible says. 
And I'm still okay with simply telling you this is what the Bible says. And you can agree with it or not agree with it, but that's not going to be my problem. And so if this morning you claim the name of Christ, one of the characteristics you must have in your life, it is essential for your life, is not to have tolerance of sin. None. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, and, and this will go into the second point too, but it's, it's as good a place as any to bring it up. It doesn't mean that we isolate ourselves from sinners. Don't misunderstand that. You can't find that example in the Bible. In fact, our Lord did quite the opposite. He spent time with sinners. But he had no tolerance of their sin. Whether it was the religious people who were being hypocritical because they were not living to the standard that they tried to give, that they, they didn't understand the grace that they had received from God to the, to the sinner who, who Jesus encountered and went into his house and ate with. He did not want them. He did not tell them to stay where they were at. He did not tell them they were okay in their sin. So don't miss that. You should be friends with sinners. You should have friends who are not Christians. In fact, I would say if you want to fulfill the Great Commission, it is commanded of you to have friends who are lost. To have relationships with people who do not know Christ. That's how they come to know Christ, is by you building relationships with them. For so long in the church, we only thought about people getting saved because we could get them to church on a Sunday morning. And if we could just get the preacher to preach the right message, they would come to the front and they would be saved. Friends, that's not how it's supposed to work. That is not anywhere in the Bible. The example in the Bible is of people who believe in Christ, building relationships with people who don't to point them toward their need for Christ. That's how it's presented in the Bible. That's the pattern that we have. And so we must be friends with sinners. We must love on people who are hurting and in need. But we do not tolerate sin. And there is a difference. And unfortunately, the churches begin to blur that. We give people the greatest lie ever by telling them that they are okay in their sin. There are going to be many people on Judgment Day who have a membership to a church who have been going faithfully, who have been giving and participating in the life of the church, but they have never had a relationship with Christ because the church was tolerant of their sin and told them they were okay, there was nothing to repent of, they did not have to believe the gospel, that their dependence on salvation was on Christ and not themselves. And that's one of the greatest lies that we have ever sold to people is that they are okay in their sin. We must not be tolerant. We are to have no tolerance for sin. And then coupled with that is the next three verses. Not only are you to have no tolerance for sin, but you're not to be joined in with sinners. So you can see by me saying that why I might have wanted to wait to say the whole thing about loving sinners. Because it, it sounds like the first one, like you can't love sinners. The second one sounds like that as well. And, and you might get that from reading this. Look what he says, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and their daughters to your sons. For they would turn away your sons following me to serve other gods. 
Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. Now first, we need to understand this passage here has been used to promote racism in the history of the church. It does not mean anything racial. You need to understand that. If you've ever heard that, you've heard it from a person who is a liar. I'm sorry if that was your mom or dad or your favorite preacher, but they were lying to you. This has been used, this very passage has been used in recent history to tell people that there should not be interracial marriages. That is not what it says. If you want to find that somewhere else in the Bible, that's fine. Go find it, bring it to me. I'll get up next Sunday and apologize with you standing right here, which is not going to happen because it's not there. You're not going to find it. People use that because they're bigots and racist and they want to try to twist it around. It's not what it says. What is the prohibition here? The prohibition is against marrying someone who does not serve the Lord, their God. And it doesn't matter if she's the prettiest girl on the block who your son is in love with, if she does not love the Lord, their God, they were not to get married. God was going to burn his anger against them. So you need to keep that in mind. You've you got kids. I've got a bunch of kids. They're eventually going to start looking at, at spouses one day, and I'm going to be glad to get them out of the house. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to do those weddings. We'll do them out in the parking lot. We'll get them done, get them gone. You know what the criteria is for my children? They better have a personal relationship with Christ or don't bring them around my house. That's all that matters. If you've got other standards, you need to get over it. Your kid can marry whoever they want to marry. And you need to keep it to yourself. Unless if they don't have a relationship with Christ. You need to raise a stink about it and not go to the wedding and protest and do anything you can to stop it from happening. Because what are they going to do? Because teenagers will do this. I remember this very thing. You know, if, if, I'll, if I'll just love them, I can win them to Jesus. And that's happened a time or two in history where people like to point that out. Except what does God say about it? Does God say, if you'll marry them and love them, you're going to win them to me? No. He says here, they're going to lead you astray. Now the Bible says if you're already married to someone and you become a Christian, and they're not, you need to stay with them. You need to fight for your marriage and fight to win them to Christ. But he says, don't, don't be intermarrying. Listen, all... You ever seen the Middle East? To, to us, and now this, I'm not meaning this in a, a racial way, but when you look at people in the Middle East, we, we think they all look the same. And they look over here, and all us white folk look the same, right? They can't distinguish any of them. But see, the difference there was not in the color of their skin. The difference was in the one whom they served. And that was what was most important. And that was the stipulation that God put on there. Because if they're from one of these other nations, if they're one of the Hittites or the Jebusites, they're going to worship false gods and they will lead your children astray. And guess what? That very thing happens, correct? In the history of, of, of Israel, that very thing is what happens. And so what is he telling them? He's telling them, do not be joined together. Do not be bound together with sinners. 
Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has the righteous with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? We need to apply this throughout our lives to ensure that we are not being ensnared by darkness. So we are friends to sinners in order to win them to Christ, but we do not bind ourselves with sinners because if we do, darkness will ensnare us. And so the applications for this are are things you've got to decide in your life. If you're a friend of a sinner and they want to start a business with you, can you do that? You've got to make that decision because if you do that, you're binding yourself with them. Are they coming to it with the same principles you are? Are they, are they coming to it with the same ideas that you are about how to do things? Again, marriage is, is the great example of it. Can you be married to someone who is not a believer and have a biblical marriage? Again, if you're already married, all of this is irrelevant. You have a different task. You have a different goal. But if you're thinking about it, Young people, as you're starting to explore that, as it's coming toward you one day, that has to be the first criteria you look at. There's a lot of other things in life, and I would say most other things that come in your marriage, that you can work out. But that one will always cause you problems. Some of you have been married to someone who was not a believer who came to Christ. What what did it do to your marriage? What did it change? It is hard because you come to it with different principles. When I was growing up, I had a buddy whose parents were, were both believers, but they were of different denominational persuasions. And so they, they went to different churches on Sunday morning. And it's the only first person I ever knew who did that, and, and I didn't understand it, but I saw the effect that it had on their son because he was pulled in, in two different directions when it came to the church. Where was he going to go, and, and, and when was he going to go where, and how was it? And this is not a, a, a divided family. It's not a family that's been affected by divorce. These are, these are two people who are married, living together, but they go to different churches, and that had an effect on their children and what their children did in service to the church. Those are things that we have got to get right. And so we have to decide in our life, what what does it mean that we should not be joined in with sinners? What does it mean that we should not be bound with them? Because this principle here he gives is for marriage, but it extends much further than that. In fact, he goes and says, listen, the opposite of you marrying off your sons. In other words, you should destroy, in verse 5, destroy everything that represents their false worship. So instead of worshiping their gods... Sending your kids to live with them, bringing their kids in to live with you, you should destroy them and all of their false worship. Think about your life. In what ways have you been bound with people who are sinful? In that, what kind of effect has it had on you? Because I've found in my life that it is much easier for me to be pulled down into their mess than for me to lift them out. In the secular jobs that I've had, I've found it so easy just to get into the mess, to the gossip and the fighting and the backstabbing. It's easier to get into that 
than it is to try to pull people out of that. You know this. Most of you work in secular employment. You work in a place where there may not be a lot of Christians. How easy it is to get down in that mess, to jump in and act like them, to follow through, to, to, to go with the flow so that you can get through the day and not have to deal with the stuff. How much easier it is to do that. That's why we as Christians have to be careful in when, in when we bind ourselves with sinners. Because we, we just know that it's different and we've got to recognize how hard it is to pull people up instead of being pulled down with them. So the next time you have that opportunity, you need to weigh that is the person that I'm going to, to work for. If you're looking for a new job and you, you sit down with your boss, or maybe you've got two opportunities and, and one boss is clearly a believer by the way they act and the way they talk and the other one isn't, that needs to weigh in. And friends, if you are the boss, and I know some of you are, make sure you're not that boss that I hear about often who says they're a believer when they go to church and they treat their employees like dirt. Don't do that. That person has bound themselves to you through employment and they, they believe if you've claimed the name of Christ that they're binding themselves to a Christian, that should mean something. It doesn't mean that you give them favoritism or anything like that. Christians should be your hardest workers. But, but it should mean something that they know that they have bound themselves to a person who shares the same spirit in their heart. We're not to we're have no tolerance for sin and we're not to be joined in with sinners. But the third thing, he changes the tone, so there's, there's kind of two negative things. You, you're not this, but then there's these two positive things in these last three verses. Things that you are because you have been chosen by God. Look at the first in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He changes tone. He gives us the why, if you will. Why is God so bent on the destruction of these false worshipers and their false worship? Why would he be so just so focused on destroying everything that was there? And he gives it in verse 7. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. You know, it's interesting. If you look in Scripture, many places in the Old Testament and the New, we are told to be holy. So, so we are told that, that there is a standard that God has, and we are to pursue that standard. So when we are in Christ, when we have a relationship with Jesus, we're told that there is, there is right and wrong, that there is good and bad, and we're to pursue Christ-likeness. So we're to pursue being like Jesus. But that's not what he says here. Do you notice that? It, there's, a, there's a subtle difference. In the other places, be holy. But what does he say here? He says you are holy. Now think about that. You know, again, there's, 
when we're saved, there's this pursuit of godliness, this pursuit of holiness that comes in our relationship with Christ. But, but here, here they are, they're a nomadic people, they have no land, they're out here in the middle of the wilderness, they have been disobedient already to God, they've been unfaithful to God, they've been doubtful toward God, and he's having this discussion with them, and he says, when you get there, and even now, but when you get there, you are holy. So there's nothing you've done, there's nothing you're going to do, you already are holy. He says, you're already holy because God has chosen you. God God has selected you. Out of all the peoples of the world, out of all the nations of the world, God has looked down and selected you to be His people. And by His selection of you, you are holy. Now that doesn't diminish, again, the passages that say be holy and talk about our pursuit of godliness, our sanctification as we try to kill the old person that's inside of us with our sin and and pursue God and what He has called us to do. But, But we need to not forget that we already are holy. Because God has chosen you because He has called you, because He sent His Son to die in your place, you are holy. Now, we don't often live very holy lives. We often don't reflect this holiness that God has given us and called us to because of His faithfulness to us and His love toward us. But we need to remember that we are holy. Why do we have no tolerance for sin? Why do we not bind ourselves to sinners? Because we're holy. We have been set apart by God. Now that should not give us an air of pride, but rather it should humble us because who are we that God would be mindful of us and care about us, and call us by His name. Why would God do that? But He has. And He has declared you to be holy. And so when we do not live up to His standards, we are rebuking His holiness. When we decide that we're going to be tolerant of sin, we are rebuking His holiness. When we bind ourselves to sinners, we rebuke His holiness. When we do not live up to His standards, we rebuke His holiness. When we do not follow His commandments, we rebuke His holiness. And that should burden our heart that we have been called holy by God who has created us and made everything that is and He calls us holy and we often don't think in that standard. I think we're right to talk about our sin. We're right to want to fight against our sin. We, we need to do those things. We're right to repent. We're right to be convicted when we disobey God. The Spirit speaks to our heart and, and we realize that we have been unfaithful to Him and we, we repent and we turn to Him once again and we, we believe the Gospel afresh day in and day out. But friends, we should not sell ourselves short. 
we have been chosen by God and called holy. And we need to live like that. We need to live as a reflection of that. We often just, again, dismiss it. We blame our mistakes on the fact that we're human, we, we're imperfect, whatever it is, we, we make those excuses. But, but how do we deal then with being called holy and what that means? Should we not take an extra moment and think through some of the decisions that we make that lead us down these paths that ultimately we regret going? When God has said, you're holy. You know, later on, God becomes, and even now, God is very protective of His people in the Old Testament. It was one of those deals like most of us do as parents, where we got no problem getting on to our kids about something. But, like, you don't mess with our kids because we'll, you know, do bad things to you. I, I, I can get on to my kid. I can jump down his throat. I can yell at him for something. But not you. You're, you're you know... Obviously, me, I want you to you know, correct my kids if necessary, but, but it's my kid, not, not your kid. Same thing for you. If, if somebody's bullying your kid, matter of fact, one of my kids get bullied, I'm going to want that to stop. At the same time, I'm going to tell my kids to man up, and you know this is what you do in that situation. But, but again, it's my kid. And God does that through the Old Testament, right? He'll get on to his people all the time. He'll get on to them. He'll punish them. He'll judge them. He'll correct them. But now not you. You other nation try to come against my people and I'll destroy you and I'll wipe you off the face of the map. That's my job. I correct my kid. And so here is God, the one who has no problem correcting his children, the one who has no problem protecting his children, the one who will lead his children where he wants them to go, but the one who will also judge them harshly if they disobey him. And he calls them holy. We need to consider that in our daily life. When we wake up in the morning, it needs to dawn on us, you know what, God has called me holy. What does that mean? How do I need to live differently today? What do I need to do differently today? I'm going out of my house to go out into the world that is full of darkness. And I'm a person who God has saved, He has chosen, and He has called holy. And I'm to be a light in this world. How should I live? Now some of you say, that's way too much responsibility. I don't want it. Okay. But that's the baseline minimum for His children. That's not like super Christian status, you know, way out here somewhere. You know, the guy who's, who's doing all this evangelism and mission work, and he's, wow, everybody, you know, just, just points to him. No, no, that's baseline Christianity. Minimal Christianity. A person who has been called holy by God and expected by God to live like that. That's the first thing. The second is with it. Not only does he call them holy, but he tells them in verse 8 something very profound. Verse 8, but it is because, why, why, why are they holy? It is because the Lord loves you. 
It is because the Lord loves you. Not only are they holy, so that's the first characteristic of those chosen, but the second is that they are loved. Now remember, these are the people that just in the last message that we had, had tested God, had doubted God when they had come to a place called Massa. They had doubted Him. They didn't have any water to drink. They were really thirsty and they figured they were just going to die there in the wilderness and they doubted God. And here, in the next chapter, he comes back to them and he reminds them, you are holy because God has set you apart and he has set you apart because you are loved. No reason given, nothing they had done, nothing they had to offer him. They were simply loved because of his own pleasure. There was, there was no particular reason. But because God loved them, it changed everything for them. Because He had loved them and delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh, He had redeemed them from the house of slavery, He had brought them out with a mighty hand. He loved them and had made an oath to their fathers that He would love them forever. Do you realize... Do you realize that God loves you for absolutely no reason at all? There's people in your life that you like and people that you love, and there are various reasons for that. Some of those reasons are very selfless, and some of those reasons are very selfish. If there's the guy at work, that brings you ice cream every day, I would say that has moved beyond like to loved. It could be your best friend just for that reason. And it's probably a little selfish because he brings you ice cream every day, which is a great gesture and a great way to earn love. But the ice cream ever dries up and probably the love is going to as well. Your spouse the love that you have for them is different than anyone else on the face of the earth. But if you could go back to the very beginning, there would be things, it would be things that had happened, trigger things, even as the fact that they just would talk to you back when you talked to them and didn't say, go away and never talk to me again. And that was the first time that ever happened to you. And so that was what it was. That's still a trigger. I remember distinctly in June of 2003, sitting in the office at the Hickory Cove Bible Camp when the bus from Lucia Baptist Church pulled up and Rachel got out. And I was sold. I mean, it was like literally weeks till we're looking at rings, literally weeks of knowing someone. But there's triggers, there's things, there's there's interactions, there's discussions, there's whatever it is, whether it's, it's some type of mental connection or physical connection or whatever it is, the, the reason that we have love toward people is that there's just connection. Even with your parents, who, who you probably can't trace back to the time you started loving them, but, but we understand that, that there is, there's 
stuff there. There's interactions that you have with them, and, and they're your parents, so there's just this, this, this love, but it's, it's a, it's a buildup of, of time spent. You know, I think about you know, every, my two sets of grandparents, my, my grandparents, my Pierce grandparents, I never knew, and so there's pictures of them in my parents' house, and when I, when I see them, there's no real emotional connection because I never knew them. But in my office on Friday, I had, was moving some things, and there was a picture of my grandparent, my, my Pardue grandparent. You know, my grandfather died about 12 years ago, and you know, my grandmother passed away a few weeks ago, and, and there was an immediate connection with that picture because there's time there, and there's, there's emotion, and there's... there's events that, that we've spent together and, and those things have built the, the love that I have for them. But God loved you for no reason. No reason that you or I would ever be able to trace. He loved you enough that he sent his son to die for you, which is a love that I'm not sure any of us can imagine. One of you held hostage in a bank, a gun to your head, and, and the trade is that I send in one of my kids, you know, so that you can come out. I'm going to say really nice things at your funeral. But that's the next step for you. I'm sorry. I mean, and, and listen, I don't expect that any of you would send in your kid to ransom me either. And if you would, you really don't want to tell them that because one day you're going to be in a place where they're going to have to take care of you. And they're not going to do that if you're just going to trade them in for the preacher. But God sends his son to die for you and you have nothing to give him. You have nothing in you worthy of that love. In fact, because God is holy, you have nothing within you that merits him doing anything for you. Not only that level of sacrifice, you and I have done nothing in comparison to the holiness of God, for God to lift even one finger for us. Just not, we don't deserve it. And yet that's exactly what he's done. And he tells the people here, you're, you're, not, you're not special. You know, it's got to make them feel real good. You're not the biggest you know, nation. You're not the most lovely. You don't have the most to offer. But I loved you anyway. Friends, we need to understand that one of the characteristics of being chosen by God is the fact that we are a person who is loved. So if you ever get to the point in your life where you think nobody loves you, remember God loves you, and that's a lot better than anybody else's love. You get to the point where you say, you know, no, nobody cares for me, nobody cares if I live or die. Jesus does. In fact, Jesus gave his life so that you would live and not die. We need to wake up each morning remembering that we have been loved by God. And no matter what anyone else in the world tells us or presents us with or tries to direct us with, no matter any of those things, the love that God has for us is greater than any of that. So if you would pick in the world the, the, the best marriage you could ever say, this couple, no doubt in my mind, has the best marriage ever. They love each other more than any couple has ever loved each other in history. God loves you more than those spouses love each other. 
It's not even close. It's not even in the ballpark. It's not even in the same realm of discussion toward the love that God has. We are loved by God. And we need to therefore live as if we're loved by God. We struggle with doubt and fear and, and whatever you're going through. You, you struggle with, with hardships. You struggle with difficulties. You struggle with problems in your marriages or in your families with your kids. You're, you're struggling with those things. Remember, you are loved by God. And it is an infinitely greater love than any that you have ever experienced anywhere else. These four things are characteristics of a person who has been chosen because of the Lord's love toward us. These, these four characteristics are true, must be true. Now, you notice the interesting thing. The second two are true because of what God has done and said. You are holy and you are loved because God has said that. But the other two require you to put in the effort. This, this understanding of sin, not having a tolerance of it, loving sinners but not tolerating sin, this, this, this goal of not binding ourselves to sinners because they'll draw us away from God. Those are on you. Those are things that you've got to work on. Those are things that you've got to do. But do you know how you do those things? By remembering that you're holy and remembering that you're loved. Because friends, if you're intolerant of sin... It's going to be a rough life. If you're intolerant of sin, you're going to have a rough life. Because God has called us to that, but the world expects us to be tolerant. They expect us to be tolerant of sin. They expect us to, to give in. They expect us to follow with whatever they say. Friends, we've got to be careful there. Because we are a holy people who have been set apart by God. And it is therefore necessary that we be intolerant of sin. We're different. We're different than the world around us. That's what the calling that God placed on His people were. You are different than the world around you. You are different than this place that you're going. You're different than this strange land that you're going into. You must therefore live differently you must act differently. You must have different priorities. You must have different ideas. You must live in a different manner than the world around you because the world around you is following these false gods and these false idols. But I have set you apart. I have loved you. I have made you holy. Friends, that's the same for us. Christ has given His life so that we would be a holy people. He has given His life so that we would be redeemed from the sin that is so prevalent in the world and we would be saved to everlasting life with Him. We must live differently. This morning, if you have a relationship with Christ, that's the calling placed on your life. That you're different. The way you act, the way you conduct yourself is, is different 
Your priorities are not the priorities of this world. They're the priorities that Christ has set for you. Your priority is to reach people with the Gospel of Christ. Your priority is to be a friend of sinners. Your priority is to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are priorities for your life if you're in Christ. And that will cause you to be different. Some of you do not know Christ. You, you never had a relationship with Him. You've, you've, never, you've never turned from your sin and believed the Gospel. You've never understood that the death of Christ is, is necess- was necessary for your salvation and believed that it's enough that you would be saved. Friends, I want to tell you that, that as a Christian, my purpose is to point you toward Christ and to tell you His good news and to, to tell you about how you can have life in Him. That's all our priorities as Christians. But if you don't know Him this morning, I want to tell you that's the good news. The, the good news is that, that God has called for Himself a holy people who he, he loves unconditionally. And if you do not know Him, he, he desires that you would follow Him. That you would leave these worldly priorities behind. You would, you would leave these things that, that do not ultimately matter and that you would turn your eyes to Christ, that you would look toward Him for salvation, that you would cry out to Him even this morning and say, Christ, save me a sinner. The great news of the Gospel is He is faithful to do that. He is faithful to save us when we turn to Him. If you do not know Him this morning, today is the day. Don't put it off to some other time. But in a few moments when you have the opportunity or after the service, find me and let me share with you how to know Christ. Because that is the most important thing you can ever do. But friends, if you know Him, you must live differently. It's it's just natural for us when Christ dwells in our heart that we would live a holy life as one loved by the God of the universe that we would shun sin, that we would turn away from it and trust in Him. Friends, that's our calling. We must follow Christ. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank You for the grace and the mercy that You've shown us, the the love that we have because You have loved us. God, I pray that during this time, God, those who know You would be convinced of the necessity of living a different life. And those who do not know You this morning, those who are here who do not have a relationship with You, God, that You would just speak to their heart. God, even now, God, speak to their heart about Your love. God, speak to their heart God, convince them that they must now, in this moment, turn from their sin and follow you. God, I pray that you just move in our midst during this time. God, that those who know you, God, would be reminded of your love and their holiness, God. They would be reminded of the life they need to live. They must live in this world. And God, again, for those who are lost, God, I pray that today you would convince them. God, move them. God, move in their heart. And we pray this morning in Christ's name. Amen.
I want to invite you to stand with me as we sing this final song this morning. If God is speaking to your heart, I pray that you would respond. If you do not know Him, today is the day to know Him. Today is the day to follow Him. If you do know Him, when we leave this place, I pray that God's Word has convinced you that we must live differently. If I convince you, it does no good. But if He convinces you, you can be convinced to the point where your life is altered where your dedication is to Him, and where you respond in the way He's called you to respond. Would you respond to God's Word this morning as we sing together?